Welcome to Croaky Voices. I'm Kate Carrigan. I pay my respects to the Gadigal people of the Aurora Nation on whose land this podcast is being made and to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people whose country is home to my guests. This ancient wisdom that we have in this land is a gift to humanity and Indigenous wisdom and science needs to be really factored into how do we work together hand in hand in terms of dealing with the complexity of climate chaos. We do need urgent transformational change. We can't keep to business as usual. We need to consider Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander ways of knowing, being and doing and change this mindset that we have that that the earth is just this endless resource. A strong call to listen to the voices of First Nations people was a central theme throughout the Healthy Environments and Lives Network 2022 conference. Funded for five years through the National Health and Medical Research Council's Special Initiative in Human Health and Environmental Change, the Heal Network brings together Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander knowledge, sustainable development, environmental epidemiology and data science and communication to address climate change and its impacts on health. Croaky Voices spoke to some of those calling for transformational change, delving into the Clean Energy for Heal initiatives, including a joint project between India and Australia to bring renewable energy solutions to rural and remote communities. In my home, which is Jugan and Yaru country, so in my language, I said, um, hello, my name is Anne Paulina. I'm a woman who belongs to the Fitzroy River, and I'm speaking with you in Broome. My role with the Marawara Fitzroy River Council is that I'm the chair. And at the recent Heal conference, you urged Australian scientists to rise up against climate chaos. What do you want them to do? What we're saying, in a way, is I feel that we are a little bit testosterone out on science We need a different way to tell the story, to bring the people with us. And so what I'm asking scientists to do is to be really creative with how they use their information, their science, to tell the story a different way because it just seems that there's so much happening and people are distracted from the IPBES, the IUCN work, and we need a way to tell the story. And that's why we say, wake up the snake. How do we wake up the consciousness of ordinary everyday people because we all need to have this ethics of care and so what I'm asking scientists to do is to be very very creative to work collaboratively because we're dealing with complexity and we need uh, collective wisdom at the table and so one of the ways is how do we take our science and transform it into a language and a way of telling the story that brings them the people with us. And at the heart of this too is recognition of the knowledges of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the first law and first science of the nation. Exactly. This is always saying, like, why would you not want to value the oldest living science in the world, which is Indigenous Australians' knowledge? We are the first everything. Eugenics, engineering, archaeology, anthropology. You know, it just goes on and on and on. So I think what we're saying is that this ancient wisdom that we have in this land is a gift to humanity And Indigenous wisdom and science needs to be really factored into how do we work together hand in hand in terms of dealing with the complexity of climate chaos. One of the big issues that we're looking at now is a bioregional framework 
for how we start to look at these systems across the nation because every part of Australia has been mapped out into what they call bioregions, watersheds. And so we can't afford to just have these little spot fires. We need to see the totality of regions and watersheds and how we start to develop a model of working together, all of the stakeholders around the table, so we can make informed decision-making, we can have cooperative uh, ways of working together, and we can also consider what the new economies could be, should be. You've also led the way in the rights of nature movement. What are those rights you want recognised and why is it so important to recognise those rights? Um, I think one of the things that we're saying in terms of the rights of nature is that the rights of nature movement globally would not have got up without the custodianship and the stewardship of Indigenous people, Native people, right across the planet. So one of the things is how do we reframe the thinking about legal pluralism to start to bring in new ways of seeing how Indigenous law, Indigenous wisdom can become complementary to Crown law or common law. And you're talking about natural features like rivers, like national parks, becoming legal entities with their own rights that we have to recognise. Exactly. I think, you know, when I looked at the Wanganui, the Whanganui River in New Zealand, I was so excited. I said, oh, this river has got personhood. And the elders looked at me as if I was a bit crazy and they said, e not a human being. So these, these things that we call our ancestors, the rivers, the mountains... One of the things we're pushing the boundary is to start to look at ancestral personhood so that these ancestors of ours can start to have legal standing and we can look at how we care for them from a total well-being perspective and value them as living systems. The land is alive, the rivers are alive, they hold memory and we want to continue to be part of that. And your work led to your own river being listed in 2020 as a lead author in a Cambridge University Press article. Yeah, no, the, the Mudpurrell or the Fitzroy River is a major horse on many of my publications. How important is that river to you personally? Oh, it's everything. Like when I introduced myself, I said, Ngai Yui Marawaraman, and I am a woman who belongs to the Fitzroy River. It's the creation of my whole identity, my values, my ethics, the way we engage with the river system as a living system. We cry with it, we dance with it, we sing with it. You know, the elders, if we're going to develop this system up, if we drain the water out, it will kill the culture. So how do we learn from rivers such as the Murray-Darling Basin? How do we do things a different way? What could the new economies be rather than just extraction this is the focus that we have is we're calling them the new economies, uh, industries that will go forever, culture, conservation, science, tourism. Uh, Minister Plebisek has made a commitment that the two next World Heritage listing places will be Cape York and the Kimberley. It is a very exciting thing because we say right now it is World Heritage, it is World Culture. The diversity of the cultural landscape in the Fitzroy River is not found anywhere else on the planet let alone the cultural diversity of the people. What's your vision for five to ten years down the track? What would you like to see in your heart of hearts happen? Well, obviously I'd like to see World Heritage listed for the whole of the Fitzroy River and the Kimberley, but most importantly there is a conversation about national parks and at the moment there are two national parks that are being developed along the Fitzroy. 
I think I'll dance when I see the whole of the Fitzroy River listed as a national park. Anne's passionate call for transformational change set the tone for the conference. Sutiris Vodulakis is Professor of Global Environmental Health at the Australian National University and Director of the HEAL Network. The purpose of the course is to uh, identify actionable solutions which will improve the environment, improve public health and policy making. We are doing practical research embedded in communities, in organizations which protect the environment, work on environmental protection, work on public health. We work very closely with policymakers and, of course, with indigenous organizations. And do you see this as making a real difference in driving transformational change? This is the aim of the network and this is the direction of travel. Of course, this is a journey. This is the first year of, of the network. We have ambitious goals. We know that a lot of the research is uh, incremental research. In many cases, there are improvements in methods, there are improvements in technology, in policy, but we also understand the need for transformational change in public health and environmental protection, especially in relation to climate change and environmental change. This is uh, an urgent need to take decisive action to tackle the risks from climate change, protect our communities, build resilience, against environmental extremes, extreme events like floods, bushfires, heat waves, and disease outbreaks. In doing that, we need to think outside the box. So we need to develop solutions which are not necessarily embedded in existing systems, which uh, in many cases uh, reproduce policy and interventions which haven't always been very effective in the past. Mm, So having to think of new solutions and new solutions that listen to community, that listen to lived experience and put in place different approaches. Absolutely. There is a lot of evidence that solutions which are top-down are not very effective. There is a much more appetite for solutions which are are co-designed with communities, with organizations, and this can be related to household energy, land use planning, the planning of a city, the plan of green spaces, the plan of transport, the plan of our built environment and infrastructure, but also the design planning and delivery of health services. Well, you chaired a, a session on clean energy as part of the conference and spoke about this joint project between India and Australia. Can you tell me what that involves? Clean energy is essential for for health and well-being. It's something that many people take for granted in our cities, but we know that many communities in remote uh, Australia, in rural Australia, indigenous communities to a large extent, face uh, energy insecurity. They don't have easy access or direct access to uh, electricity. They rely on diesel generators. And of course, this has an impact on their energy bills, but also on the environment, create a lot of air pollution. And there is a clear opportunity here to move away from polluting and expensive energy solutions based on fossil fuels and transition to clean energy, to transition to solar energy, especially in Australia. We're in a a like situation to have a lot of solar energy that we can harness in domestic environments and houses to replace polluting and expensive energy sources. So we have this exciting project working in partnership with colleagues and communities in, in India under this international climate change partnership. We find there are many parallels between rural communities in India and modern rural communities and Aboriginal communities in Central Australia. We learn from colleagues in India how they use microgrids, how they use solar energy, 
how to promote clean energy in rural households. And of course, we learn and provide the expertise, the exchange of knowledge from our experience of colleagues in Central Australia, the experience of communities in Central Australia. And we try to identify barriers and enablers for, for clean energy. And this could be institutional barriers, barriers related to infrastructure, and also related to awareness and understanding of the benefits of, of clean energy. What about the, the whole issue of driving down greenhouse gas emissions and that the impact on health and the environment from those? Clean energy has the double benefit of reducing the energy bills, overheating in houses in rural and remote Australia by providing cooling solutions, and at the same time, of course, reducing greenhouse gas emissions from from, uh, the use of fossil fuels. So there are multiple benefits for health, for the environment, and also for climate change mitigation. And of course, some of these benefits are immediate, providing affordable, clean and reliable energy, but also in the long run, it's absolutely essential climate mitigation targets in Australia and internationally. So Tiris, are you optimistic coming out of the conference that things are going to change? I think we need to be optimistic. The technological solutions are available in terms of solar technologies, microgrid systems and technologies and batteries. So there are, technologically, I think we're in a good place. There are solutions which can be scaled up in rural and remote Australia and uh, also in India. The main issue is related to institutional barriers and systemic problems around housing quality, housing ownership. It's very difficult to promote clean energy and solar systems in houses which are not owned by the families, the communities. And your main call to action for those people who did attend all of the different organisations, have you got a, a message to all of those on what you'd like to see them doing going forward? I think there is a lot of potential and many benefits from collaboration. International collaboration, I think it's essential. There are many opportunities to learn from the experience of the Indian communities and Indian colleagues and technology innovation in India. And likewise, there are many aspects uh, and improvements in Central Australia. There is a lot of potential. And of course, Working with communities is absolutely essential. So these solutions should not be top-down, co-designed, with communities, this is absolutely essential for improving adoption of clean energy technologies. It's important to make sure that the technologies are suitable, culturally appropriate for the places uh, where they're going to be implemented. And of course, indicate very strongly that clean energy, good housing quality are public health issues. And of course, by addressing those issues, we improve health, we improve well-being from for local residents, will improve the local economy that will generate local opportunities for economic development as well and employment and will improve health and well-being and, and reduce inequities within our society. I work as a health systems researcher at the University Centre for Rural Health in Lismore. We're part of the University of Sydney. My mob is uh, the Kwandamuka community from Njeraba, which is North Stradbroke Island in Queensland. Veronica Matthews, co-chair of the HEAL 2022 conference, is co-leader of the Centre for Research Excellence in Strengthening Systems for Indigenous Healthcare Equity. So for me, um, as a First Nations woman, health of country is intrinsic to our health. We have a a deep spiritual connection to uh, the land and, and waters from where our ancestral ties are. So I, I think this network is a, a really positive step and an overdue 
one in terms of the government recognising the need for investment in this space and for more research and, most importantly, increasing the voices of, of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in this space. Well, following up on that, you spoke of the need to change the culture, overturn those colonial mindsets. What's needed to make that happen? We need the rest of Australia really to, to listen to the valuable knowledges that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have when it comes to caring for the country. We've lived in this place for thousands and thousands of years as multiple generations where there is experience about changing climatic conditions and how communities have adapted to those. So we are facing an emergency situation in terms of what climate change is, is doing to our ecosystems and the climate. We do need urgent transformational change. We can't keep to business as usual. We need to consider Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander ways of knowing, being and doing and change this mindset that we have that, that the earth is just this endless resource. In the clean energy session, you and your Indian colleague, Professor Krishna Vasudevan, talked about the, the use of renewables to transform lives in remote communities in India and Australia. What are the opportunities and the barriers too? There's Large opportunities, particularly in the in the location that we're working in for, for this project, which is Central Australia, you know, has um, endless amounts of solar energy for us to, to harvest. So there there is a lot of opportunity to transition remote communities who are at the moment are experiencing energy poverty. There's a real inequity when it comes to the availability of renewable energy sources across the country. We're seeing loads of take-up of solar domestic technology in urban centres along the East Coast, but we're not seeing it in remote communities in Central Australia. They are experiencing extreme electricity costs through the power system setups in, in Central Australia, which is primarily based on dirty, polluting diesel generation sources and user pay systems, so power card systems, the only sort of household in Australia that has to prepay for energy use. They're unable to cool their places. They're, they're making hard decision when it comes to balancing energy needs and budgets. Um, we've just saw the first ever community house, Norm Frank Jabarula's household in, in Tennant Creek get solar energy on his roof, but that was through a long battle against bureaucracy and with the support of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander organisations like the First Nations Clean Energy Network that really enabled that to happen. So we proved that it can be done. It's just a matter of keeping up the pressure on policy makers to spread this good good example of, of how communities can, can take advantage of that solar, solar energy. It seems extraordinary. That's taken a few years to happen. Um, and you'd think by now there would be solar panels on a lot of those houses in that area and that it would be connected through maybe a microgrid or something, but but that hasn't happened. No, and it, it is a bit hard to understand why. I mean, I, I do understand there are technical issues when it comes to potentially overloading systems with solar energy sources, but we've shown it in urban places that those types of technical issues can be overcome. There are barriers there, um, another one being the remote location. So there are logistical issues in terms of 
maintaining the technology and getting the technology there in, in the first place. But I don't think they're insurmountable. It just takes political will and probably community groundswell of support, not just within remote communities, but across the country to see this inequitable issue be addressed. So a really collaborative and innovative approach to ensure communities are involved in co-design and see the benefits of adopting renewable systems too. That's right. So we do need to work closely with community on on the design of these energy systems, but also on the design of houses. The other inequitable issue is the state of housing in these remote locations, given the poor thermal design, even of new builds in these communities. I had the privilege of visiting Tennant not that long ago. I spoke with some of the community members who have moved into new houses less than a year old, but they're still the same old design from the 1980s, the block houses with minimal breezeways, minimal eaves. The, the block houses themselves absorb heat. There's no inside insulation. Talking to some of the residents, it's much cooler to sit outside. But sitting outside means sitting on a, a hard ground with no landscaping and no, no shade structures. So we do need more community involvement in both the design of houses and in renewable energy structures. These things sound like such no-brainers that this would have changed by now. How confident are you, how optimistic are you of a better future where networks like the Hill Network can really work to make these changes happen? Yeah, I think firstly, it's through um, just talking about these issues. A lot of the time, I think most of Australia is ignorant to some of the issues that are happening out in rural and remote Australia. So bringing the issue to attention, really just keeping up the, the advocacy with community around the inequities that they, they are experiencing. And climate change is just going to exacerbate these inequities, which will also complicate the government's goal of closing the gap. We're not going to see a closing of the gap while these issues are still apparent in rural and remote communities. So the Hill Network does have an important role to play in that advocacy um, and to working with community to, to designing new ways of doing things. Instrumental in Creating and Driving Change is an organisation mentioned by Veronica, the First Nations Clean Energy Network. Set up a year ago, the FNCEN are a network of First Nations people, community organisations, land councils, unions, academics, industry groups, technical advisors, legal experts, renewables companies and others working in partnership to ensure that First Nations communities share in the benefits of the clean energy boom. Yorta Yorta woman Karina Nolan is Executive Director of Original Power and a member of the Network Steering Committee. So we've spent two years talking to people about some of the issues facing our communities, particularly in the context of climate change. And so many of our mobs are still on the front lines of new fossil fuel projects. And then many of our communities are certainly not experiencing um, clean, safe, reliable power. So one of the things that the network, when it launched 12 months ago, really is focusing on energy security for our communities, you know, right across the country, no matter where you live, you know, that includes ensuring our communities can stay on homeland. Looking at the benefits of kind of the medium and large scale renewable projects. So we're also hearing from traditional owners right around the country that people aren't aware of what renewables could look like and certainly not aware of the potential benefits. People haven't really been part of that conversation. And so really the network has launched and we've got these three pillars to make sure that our communities are front and 
to when it comes to clean energy. And it's really so important, isn't it? Because especially some of these really remote communities, if you have unreliable power, you've got inadequate housing, it really is a recipe for disaster. Absolutely. What we saw during COVID was that lots of people that were part of the national energy market, there were guarantees that people weren't disconnected from power. Yet you look at our communities and people are disconnected often once every two weeks, which means people are sometimes making a decision to keep the lights on or to keep things cool in the fridge. And that shouldn't be acceptable when we're looking at the kind of energy transition of the scale that we're talking about. Yeah. And why are these electricity supplies just so unreliable in a lot of these remote areas? So I think there's a couple of things going on. So we're talking about transitioning people away from diesel, which is expensive, but also dirty. So it's really at this stage with the technology we have available, it's very possible that all of our communities can be living from solar wind or renewable technology. And there's also some barriers in place. So one of the other pieces of work that we're doing through the network is working with the federal government and state territory government to make sure that there's policy reform. That means regardless of the kind of house you live in, I mean, we'd also like to see houses be more energy compliant but making sure regardless whether you're in social housing or not that actually you can have solar on on your property so there's a range of things that I think have been in the way of us ensuring that all of our communities have access to power. When you launched this time last year there was work being done at the time on microgrids in places like Buralura and out of Alice Springs what's happened with those has there been success? So there's a number of microgrid projects going on all around the country and it's it's slow going. So there's all the work of the feasibility to make sure that the technical components are right. But I think one of our big learnings, and we've been looking to our Canadian counterparts on this, is what does it look like for us to you know, own energy projects? What are the processes that need to be in place? The kinds of ownership models, if you like. So I think there's work still to do on raising the capital to actually build these projects once you've done all the technical feasibility and making sure that everybody's happy with what it's for and where it is and that sort of thing. And then right through to kind of, hey, make sure you distribute the power equitably and make sure that communities benefit. So there's actually quite a bit of work involved in some of these projects. Most of them are still at that sort of pre-development stage, but hopefully in the next 12 months or two years, we'll be seeing those projects actually be built. And the network has recently launched guides to help communities. Do you think this is really going to help them with co-design and become drivers of the project to be able to do this and take control? I really hope so. It's a lot of work, though, making sure that the right people get that information. You know, all of our communities look really different. Some of us have, you know, different nation entities, prescribed body corporates, land councils. So there's differences in the kinds of decision-making bodies and governance that we have. So making sure that materials around how to best negotiate gets in the right hands will be part of the work of the network over the next little while. So that's one of the guides to make sure that people understand what the benefits could look like and how to get in there and really negotiate what you'd like to see. And then the other guide is the best practice principles that we're targeting the industry to implement. So regardless of the kind of land tenure arrangements, we'd be saying to industry, here's the 10 things that you need to do to make sure that your industry is doing the right things by community. And the major challenges of the future? What you'd like to see really achieved in the next, uh, say, couple of years to try to make this a reality for many communities across the country? Yeah, look, I think there's a couple of things. There's, you know, a whole bunch of government reform work to be done because actually this is in the context of climate change. So we also need to make sure that we're phasing out fossil fuels in order for the energy transition to happen in the first place. And then, of course, with the development of clean energy, we want to see our communities front and centre at the table, really negotiating benefits that are for everybody and also that make sure that we're not impacting country and we're protecting 
special and sacred places as we go. I think all of those things, plus I think one of the things that the Canadians have done very well is make sure that our communities can be the proponents. So we're seeing more First Nations businesses and companies actually running these projects where our communities have consented to them and design them and want to see them. So I think we've got some work to do catching up at that end to make sure that we're businesses in, in the process as well. So there's a whole range of things that I think we, we can work on in the next little while. But I think if we, you know, shift the mindset about what's possible, change the way the industry thinks it can do business with us and in our country, I think we can um, really some good benefits and good projects. And do you think you need more federal, state and territory government money and involvement? So one of the reasons we're working on a co-design strategy at a federal level is to see more involvement from all jurisdictions. So some of the policy reform is really at a state level. and Some of the things around energy security need to be dealt with by state governments. But then you're also looking at, you know, the largest energy transition we've seen in our lifetimes, which means you need federal oversight. We're talking around 10,000 kilometres transmission lines. That's a lot of impact on the cultural landscape. We need to make sure people are consenting to those or that they're being moved to different locations. That's going to require kind of oversight and policy reform, but also resources, I think. It is a bit of an all-in effort because this is a transition that needs to happen, so we need to make sure we're all part of it. As Karina Nolan explained, there are still many issues to overcome in getting renewable energy into communities. Things like regulatory barriers, the state of housing and the remoteness of the location. One researcher who's been looking at the extent of the problem with insecure power supplies is Tom Longdon from the ANU Crawford School of Public Policy. So we looked at some of the remote Indigenous communities in the Northern Territory. They have prepayment for electricity, which means that they have to top up a credit account. They need to keep an eye on how much credit they have left, because if they run out of credit, they can and they will be disconnected from their electricity. And we found that the rates of disconnection are quite high. Um, we had data for about 3,300 households, nine out of 10 of those households disconnected from electricity in a given year. And that more than 75% of households disconnected from power more than 10 times in one given year. Oh, my goodness. And that equates to food spoiling in the fridge, medicines that need to be kept refrigerated, being put at risk, heating systems, all sorts of things being taken out by power going down. That's right. It includes lighting as well. There are no protected circuits. Uh, There is the possibility to keep lighting and other essential services on with a different circuit. That doesn't happen. One of the key findings that we made was that the rate of disconnection increases during hot and cold temperatures. And so electricity use during either cold or heat, especially in the central part of the country, where basically you get very hot days and you get quite cold nights below negative temperatures, we're finding that disconnection rates increase At moderate temperatures, there's a one in seven chance of being disconnected on any given day. But for heat waves, there's a one in four chance of getting disconnected. And for cold temperatures towards zero degrees, uh, there's a one in three chance of being disconnected. So just when people need it, when the extremes are there, they're not getting it. And with climate change, these extremes are becoming even more so. That's right. And it's one of the things that one of our co-authors who lives in community actually pointed out to us that he's really concerned about how people will sustain healthy and cool homes during future summers. And he's been a pioneer in many ways. He's the first NT 
resident in one of these communities to get solar panels on his rooftop. Uh, and we're doing a little bit of preliminary analysis on some of the data that we have from his house. And we've found that after the solar panels were installed, he hasn't disconnected. That electricity during the middle part of the day is really helping to secure a reliable supply of electricity to his home. So that's Norman Frank Jupalura, and we heard earlier from Veronica Matthews who mentioned him and his battle. That's taken a long time. Do you think now more people might get power on because of what's happened with his house? Uh, it's unclear. We hope so because those grids really rely upon diesel. So we do hope to see more solar panels in these remote communities. One thing that's important is how those solar panels get installed, because if it's part of the grid, if the tariff stays the same, if there's no allowance for disconnection periods to change based on times of day, then you could have a perverse situation where you have a solar installation down the road that needs to basically expend or curtail its electricity during the sunniest period of the day and people in community still being disconnected. Where rooftop solar is the case where if it's behind the meter, the household gets the benefit of having that electricity to use first. They'll get a feed-in tariff as well, so they'll get compensated for any electricity they use. But of course, with the story that's happening across Australia, the network needs to adapt to be able to manage that system. And so we are hopeful that people's livelihoods will improve if they get rooftop solar. However, we're really waiting to see if the government intervenes and really does do an initiative in this area. Well, Tom, you also spoke at the Clean Energy for Heal session about the Victorian Healthy Homes Project. Can you tell me about that? Back in the day, uh, before I was at ANU, I was part of the team at UTS that was evaluating the Healthy Homes Project being run by Sustainability Victoria. That government body was going around and offering free retrofits to vulnerable people. They had a range of interventions to improve the thermal comfort of homes during the winter, and they were basically doing a randomised control experiment where they would do some of the interventions before winter and some after winter and then compare whether there were benefits in terms of energy costs, health improvements. And they found that there was a net benefit of doing those retrofits in those homes. And that study has just come out online in the last couple of months. And what's that going to mean? Will that mean it'll be rolled out uh, more broadly? Uh, again, it's uncertain what happens next. There were plans to try to use this study and use these findings as a way to advertise to extend the program and go to other homes. There is a federal government initiative to look at energy efficiency and other things. That includes a focus on First Nations peoples. So at the moment, we're really waiting to see what happens in this space. And New Zealand has a really interesting case where they've actually changed their insulation standards based on different parts of the countries, based on climate zones, and called that part of their Healthy Homes Initiative. Australia could replicate that, and the ACT government has. In New Zealand, it's retrospective, so rental properties need to actually have better insulation by a certain date, otherwise they're not in compliance anymore. And so initiatives like that would be exciting to see, but we basically wait to see if it happens in the next couple of years. Jimmy
Jeremy Cocking is CEO of Desert Knowledge Australia, a not-for-profit corporation in the Northern Territory encouraging sustainable development. Jimmy, can you tell me how important clean energy is to the vision of Desert Knowledge Australia? Clean energy is an important part of our of the work that we do here at Desert Knowledge Australia. So we've got uh, the Desert Knowledge Australia Solar Centre here on the precinct, which was developed in 2008. It was actually the first utility-scale solar system that was installed in Australia. And we've now since got 40 installations there, which are showcasing a range of different technologies. And you can actually access and look at the data real time in terms of how those systems are performing. We're also a coordinator of the Alice Springs Future Grid project. And so uh, that came off the back of uh, the Inchalam, which is uh, an Arunda word for the fire coming back up after it's gone down. And that was $5 million from the Northern Territory Government to support a rollout of renewables. And so part of that work that money has been leveraged to get investment from both ARENA and also the Department of Industry, Science and Energy and Resources to roll out the Alice Springs Future Grid, which is looking at system level scale of Alice Springs renewable energy to be able to get to 50% by 2030. And so we're working with a range of partners, Power Water Corporation, Territory Generation, Ikistica, which is a local Aboriginal-owned engineering firm, and also other partners to look at the system level change that we need to get to that target. So how difficult will it be to get there? What are the challenges that you are facing in putting that future grid into place? Well, some of the challenges have been in the past the silo, the siloization of the energy grid. So prior to 2014, we had a vertically integrated power water corporation, which was uh, territory government owned, and they owned the poles and wires, the generation assets, and you'd also get a bill from them. But the, the previous government split up the entity into three different entities, territory generation for generation, power and water, system control, and poles and wires, and Jakarta, which are the retailer. As a result of that, there was different organisations, different boards, different organisational cultures, so they hadn't been working together as much as you would hope. And also the fact that there had been a big investment here in Alice Springs of big gas generators without much thought to how they would integrate with renewables. And so we've got these barriers of infrastructure, but it's also in terms of getting that culture of change because renewables are a lot more dynamic than, say, burning gas and a lot less predictable. There's up to 20 megawatts out of our 55 megawatt peak load is solar here. So it's almost 40%. But what happens is that in certain times of the year, in April or October, in those sort of shadow shoulder seasons, the amount of solar that's being generated can actually mean that the gas generators are down below idling, which means that if a big band of cloud comes over and knocks out all of that solar, it's very hard for that system to jump back up uh, and can actually risk blackouts and stalling. So that's where the driver for this project has come from. We all need to be working together, and that's where Future Grid actually comes with that foundation of the need for us to work together. Working together on innovative solutions, listening to and working with communities, respecting and incorporating the voices of First Nations people. Just some of the challenges ahead as the Healthy Environments and Lives Network continues its work. That's it for Crokey Voice's special look at HEAL 2022 as part of the Crokey Conference News Service coverage. 
You can find out more by using the hashtag HEAL2022 or at croaky.org for related articles. If you like what you're hearing, please follow, like and share and consider subscribing to Croaky News for just $80 a year to help us bring you independent quality coverage of public health news and policy. Or consider making a one-off donation to Croaky Health Media. Until next time, I'm Kate Carrigan.